Welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica. I'm your host, Alok Jha. This week, we're delving further into the unique role Antarctica plays in our understanding of climate change. We're talking to Professor Dame Jane Francis, Director of the British Antarctic Survey. She is a geologist and a paleobotanist at the British Antarctic Survey. Her research interests include ancient climates and fossil plants from both the Arctic and Antarctic. She was awarded the Polar Medal for her contribution to British polar research and was appointed as Dame Commander of the Order of St Michael and St George for services to UK polar science and diplomacy. Jane, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to have the chance to talk about Antarctica. It's one of my favourite topics of conversation. Jane, for most people, Antarctica is a place that's cold and hostile and barren. It's a desert. Has the climate of Antarctica always been like that? So millions of years ago, yes, Antarctica was warm. It was covered in forests. Dinosaurs lived in the forests. And everybody I talk to about this always says, well, the continent must have drifted from the equator because that's where it was warm. And, you know, and then drifted to the polar regions where it get cold. And that's not the case at all. In fact, geologists can tell from um, signals of minerals in the rocks exactly where the continents were millions of years ago in terms of their latitude. And we do know that Antarctica was situated as a continent over the South Pole 100 million years ago. That's quite significant. And so when we find rocks and fossils that show us warmth in Antarctica, it does mean that the Earth was globally warm and the polar regions, particularly Antarctica, was warm. The, The continent was there and it was warm close to the South Pole. Of course, the reason for that is that we understand is that carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere were much higher then. You know, the, the signals that we can get from rocks and fossils show, it that, show us that carbon dioxide was much higher and that was caused the warmth at that time. It caused warmth and an abundance of life, uh, as, as you've described. So what time scale are we talking about? Did you say 100 million years, more than that? 100 million years ago, yeah. So before that, Antarctica as a continent wasn't really over the pole. It has moved around, you know, plate tectonics. uh, uh, The continent has moved around over millions of years. But that's why 100 million years is significant, because from 100 million years until today, um, the, the, the Antarctic continent has been over the South Pole. And it's been fairly stable over the South Pole. That's quite important because it means that when we look at rocks and fossils, and then more recently in the in the ice record, what we see is a record of how the climate changes, not the position of the continent. So th- these um, plants and animals that were on the continent at the time, just paint us a bit more of a picture of what kinds of things. You mentioned dinosaurs. I mean, what kinds of dinosaurs were there down there and, and what kinds of trees and plants? So what we find in terms of plant fossils are all the bits of the plants that we need to identify them. So we find these huge um, petrified uh, fossil logs. So pieces of wood that have, that you know, 100 million years ago was gro- growing on the land that was Antarctica. They died. They were probably blown down in storms. They floated out to sea. They floated into the adjacent ocean basin, um, buried in the muds. And then they were over millions of years turned to stone. Um, and so we can collect them, we cut them with a diamond tip saw, and then we can look at the structure 
the actual detailed microscopic structure in the wood and that helps us identify the types of trees. Um, we can collect fossil leaves, pollen, flowers, uh, all different kinds of plant parts. So that helps us understand the kind of trees that grew in the vegetation. And what we find actually is that many of the uh, plant types that we've reconstructed are the early ancestors of much of the vegetation that grows in the Southern Hemisphere today. So if I took you walking through um, Patagonia, South America, if I took you through particularly the west coast of Tasmania, so in the west coast of Tasmania, there's a huge uh, national park. And in that park, the forests are particularly um, ancient Antarctic types. So uh, the most common, I think, is a tree called uh, Southern Beech, Nothophagus. And that grew, Antarctica, grew in Antarctica and was very common in Antarctic forests. We see ancient ancestors of monkey puzzle trees in the Antarctic forests as fossils. And today they grow in the high Andes of Chile amidst the volcanoes in, in the mountains in the Andes. Um, we see some trees which have flowers on in, in Tasmania and we find the ancestors of them in our Antarctic fossil collection. So if you walked through those uh, forests in Tasmania, if you add a few dinosaurs, you would really be working, walking through ancient forests of Antarctica. That's a really interesting vision. Um, the, today, as I said in my first question, um, the Antarctica is essentially a barren continent. It's a desert, isn't it? Um, because of the changes in, in the Earth's climate in the past 100 million years or so. Um, what, what happened to the... Well, the climate of the Earth, for a start, and then to Antarctica itself, to, to sort of turn it from sort of a lush um, vegeta vegetative thing to um, to this desert. Oh, well, that's a good question. And, and the key thing is, that's why it's important to know that the continent hasn't changed its position. So what actually has happened is climate change. And as we study all the different rock types from 100 million years ago until today, what we're finding is that it is about the story about carbon dioxide, which has which has sometimes been higher and sometimes been lower, but generally the trend from a hundred million years ago is generally uh, lowering of carbon dioxide until we get to the cold climates that we have today. Just before you carry on there, actually, what what is it about? Uh, how how does the uh, over that span of time how does carbon dioxide go up and down in the atmosphere? What what is causing it to sink or rise? Well, the source of carbon dioxide mainly in the past was volcanic eruptions. So when volcanoes erupt, they, they throw out a lot of um, lava and rock, but also lots of gas. And one of those gases is carbon dioxide. And so there were times in the past on a geological timescale when um, there was a lot of movement of the plates and then there was a lot of volcanic activity and then there was a lot of carbon dioxide. So there were times in the last 100 million years when we can see phases of very warm climates and we see we even see some plants which are um, ancestors of plants that grow in the tropics today in in Antarctica in the Antarctic fossil collection when clearly Antarctica was much much warmer than today and and the plants were able to spread further south from sort of the tropical regions and then the natural cycle of the of the earth is to gradually uh, 
diminish CO2 so that the carbon dioxide is gradually um, taken back down into the earth through various uh, geological cycles, including the weathering of rocks, which converts carbon dioxide into a rock form, and then that gets buried back down into the earth. So there's a huge geological cycles that, that bury the carbon dioxide and then it's released again through volcanic activity and then buried again. And these are very natural cycles that, that go on over tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years. Absolutely. So the time scale is enormous. So what, yes. what I suppose what, what, what that tells you is that carbon dioxide is a very potent uh, greenhouse gas that makes the, the planet warmer. Um, and, you know, it can be part of natural cycles, but it does have a huge impacts on the planet. Absolutely, absolutely. So we know that um, when uh, the climate was much warmer, CO2 levels were much higher, carbon dioxide levels were higher, and that when we've been in an ice age, carbon dioxide levels are much lower. So it is one of the main gases that really control Earth's climate. Yeah. So moving to the current climate now, we have uh, Antarctica um, as it is, which is you know as a, a, a cold, um, cold place. Um, but it's changing as well, uh, even now. So w- we talk about the climate crisis now, which is human-made, the, the carbon dioxide being increased into the atmosphere at, at levels that you know haven't been seen for a long time. Tell us what Antarctica itself and the changes it's undergoing now can tell us about the atmosphere around it. Well, currently, uh, carbon dioxide levels are rising very, very fast. I mean, much faster than they have risen in the geological past. So that's the difference. And the warming is quite intense. The really key thing about Antarctica and the Arctic, the polar regions, is that they are the regions on Earth which are most sensitive to change, to climate change. And we've, we've seen this in the geological past as well. So when the Earth's climate um, changes, it changes first in the polar regions. So we see the signal, if you like, in the rocks much earlier than we see it in the tropics. And we also see it much more um, intensely, so much wider. So if there's a a change in temperature, we see a much greater change in temperature in the polar regions first. And when when it cools, we see a much uh, rapid cooling and deep cooling of the Earth at the polar regions. So they are sort of real uh, signals of how the climate is changing across the Earth. So, uh, so the, 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 the poles you're saying are the uh, where you see the impacts of climate change first? Yes. So, so today we see climate change most uh, drastically in the polar regions, you know, both in the Arctic with the melting of the sea ice and in the Antarctic with the melting of the ice sheets. So at the moment, um, compared to the Arctic, where the sea ice is less stable, it's easier to melt the sea ice, um, the Antarctic continent sits underneath the ice sheet. So the ice sheets are sitting on a, mainly on a big block of rock, the rocky continent. And so they're a bit more stable than the Arctic. And um, we're, we're really beginning to see the beginnings of the impact of climate change in Antarctica. Are there particular parts of the continent that you know, worry you the most? Yes. So most focus at the moment for trying to understand climate change is looking at the ice, obviously, and melting ice. And the area which is receiving most attention is what's called the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. So Antarctica is actually made of two ice sheets. There's one on the the, the main body of Antarctica, which actually is a big, thick ice 
cap, sometimes up to four kilometres thick in places, and that's sitting on really on a sort of rocky continent. The West Antarctic ice sheet, which is the, the, the thinner part of the ice sheet, which has a, contains a peninsula which points up towards Chile, that part of the ice sheet doesn't sit so much on a rocky basement. There is some rock there, but most of that ice sheet is actually below sea level. And what scientists think is happening today is that the warming ocean around Antarctica is actually lapping up onto the edges of that ice sheet and particularly warming up the water underneath the ice shelves. So the key thing about these ice shelves is this is where the glaciers on land, they, they stream down off the land onto the ocean and then they float for a while out to sea until they break up into icebergs. And that they play a really critical process in, in the glacial cover in Antarctica and they are what, what is called the buttresses or the doorstops of the ice in Antarctica. And so they are keeping those big glacial streams back onto, on the continent. And the trouble is, if those ice shelves collapse, if they melt, then suddenly we expect to see a real rush of ice from the glaciers in Antarctica off the land into the ocean. And that's what will cause global sea levels to rise. So, so you, you mentioned the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, the peninsula. That's where a lot of the British, British Antarctic uh, work is at the moment, isn't it? The West Antarctic Peninsula. Yes, yeah, around the, our main area of working um, is the Antarctic Peninsula and a bit further down, uh, further away. I mean, we work across the whole continent, but the focus at the moment is on these big ice shelves around the Antarctic Peninsula region. And so we have a lot of big field camps that are actually taking observations um, of what is actually happening to these ice shelves. So we have, for example, right now we have a big project that's joint with the US. So the uh, funding agencies in the UK and the US have got together to fund the Thwaites Glacier project. So Thwaites Glacier has one of these big ice shelves attached to it. And the warm water is coming up underneath the ice shelf. And, and what we really want to know is, is that warm water melting the bottom of the ice shelf? And even more, if it does melt its way through into the bottom of the ice shelf, it could actually melt its way right into the sort of beginning of the ice shelf and it could lift the ice shelf off the rock that it's attached to at the moment. So instead of being sort of stable on the rock surface, it will float that glacier, the end of the glacier in the ice shelf, and then that warm water will penetrate further into the West Antarctic ice sheet. And as it does that, it will take warmer water below a much larger area of ice and then potentially can start really melting the heart out of the West Antarctic ice sheet. This sounds like a nightmare scenario. <laughs> well, the really, really critical, th yes, the really, really critical thing about that is that that West Antarctic ice sheet holds about three or four metres of sea level rise globally. So that means, you know, if, as, as we're sitting here in the UK, we need to think about what three or four metres of sea level rise will look like. I mean, it will drown most of, most of the lowland areas in the UK, but it will have a dramatic impact along many continental coastlines all across the world. There'll be a lot of, where lots of people live, you know, 
where there are lots of supply chains, where lots of factories and lots of lots of uh, uh, um, populated areas. So it will have a dramatic effect. Are scientists concerned about um, that particular scenario happening within the next century or so? I mean, we're talking about a huge amount of um, ice melting or slipping into the sea. Well, that's one of the things that actually, that's one of the really big questions that the scientists are trying to answer is how fast is this process going to, to go? And not just how fast will it go, but whether or not there's a critical point, you know, called a tipping point, and will it will really spill over and go much faster? I know that um, some colleagues of mine who've done climate models to try and predict how fast the melting will be uh, are, are concerned that it's we're talking about hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years as opposed to tens of thousands of years. You know, so I think once it goes, it may go quite quickly. But at the but this is all this is all new because um, until fairly recently, we've never had the technology. We've never had the ability to be able to go to these areas and see underneath a nice shelf. You know, this is quite a new area for exploration because, um, I mean, it's it's very dangerous area to work. You're sitting off the edge of a big ice ice cliff. You're looking some some of the um, of our field workers in, in ships looking at the uh, warm ocean and and they're using now new technology, autonomous vehicles that they can launch from the ship and like they're like um, small uh, robots, small submarines, and they can send them underneath the ice shelf and they can take uh, pictures with cameras. They can collect uh, water and look at the chemistry of the of the water. They can they can record the temperature of the water, you know, for miles inland underneath this ice shelf. When you um, just you, you, you've had a, um, a notable career in under, trying to understand how, you know, the, the continent is changing and, and you've spent many, many years looking at looking at the geology and the climate around that area. When you get this new technology and you see these um, the, the melting of these these ice sheets um, in, in this way happening so quickly, I mean, does it surprise you? Has it surprised you as you discovered these things Um or, or you know, is it to be expected given given what we know about the way the climate's changing? So until a, until a few years ago, I'm being a being a geologist, so I do understand what changes, you know, and the Earth does change naturally, and I'm used to change on sort of a millions of years timescale. You know, I don't usually work in anything less than a million years, but. Um, more recently, though, going to Antarctica, being able to see the changes that are happening and and, and it, certainly in the last five years or so, seeing how those changes so quickly, it is quite scary. I mean, the, I think it's way, way beyond the natural state of change, the natural pace of change that has happened in the past. And um, the one thing that we do know is that the carbon dioxide level currently in the atmosphere is about 400, it's about 410 parts per million. Now, we do know from looking at the old air, ancient air that's trapped in ice that we can uh, see as bubbles of air trapped in old ice that we can find in ice cores. We know that in the sort of the last ice age, so let's go back, you know, 120,000 years or something like that, when there was ice extending, you know, halfway across the UK, halfway across the Northern Hemisphere and across most of Antarctica. Um, we know that it's a maximum extent. The, the, the carbon dioxide levels never went above 300 parts per million. It was all, you know, that was, it was less than that sometimes, but it was never more than that, even at the time when it warmed up. 
But now we're at 400 parts per million. I mean, we're way, way, way above where that stable waxing and waning of the Ice Age was happening. And if we want to know what a 400 parts per million world looks like, we actually have to go back in the rock record. So this is where the rocks come back in again. And we need to go back and look at rocks that are about two or three million years old, because then we have worked out that the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere was about 400 parts per million at that point. And so what we can do is we can look at rocks that are two or three million years old all around the, the earth. We can work out where the sea levels were by looking at the rock record and looking at fossils. We can try and understand the extent of the ice sheets on Antarctica two or three million years ago and, and in the Arctic. And we can look at kinds of animals that lived and where they lived. And we can paint a picture of what a two or three, hundred, two or three million year old world looked like at 400 parts per million. And what we see is that probably there were ice sheets on Antarctica, but they were much smaller and they waxed and waned. They grew and they shrank a bit faster. And we can also see that in places there were between 10 and 20 meters higher sea levels around the earth. So the interesting thing at the moment is where we are in, in, in Earth's history is that our landscape, if you like, with Antarctica covered in ice sheets completely, is, uh, is still at a 300 parts per million year ice age world. But we are, in, in terms of carbon dioxide, we're way beyond that. We're, all, we're at this different 400 parts per million world. And so there's a catch-up phase going on right now. The Earth is trying to catch up to that 400 parts per million carbon dioxide level. With, with the implication being, of course, that if it does do that, then the sea levels will be 10 metres higher in some places. Yeah, so the, the key thing is I think we're already committed to that change. So even if we stopped putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere tomorrow and we kept it at 400 parts per million, we still have to go through quite a lot of change for the Earth's landscape, if you like, to catch up with that level of carbon dioxide. And of course, at the moment, we're not anywhere near being able to stop CO2 at 400 parts per million. It's continuing to rise. And so we are, you know, still playing this catch up game. So it'll be more than 10, 10 metres sea level rise, I think. Um as you described now, um, Antarctica is a place of science. Lots of countries have bases. There's lots of geology and climate and even astronomy work going on down there. Um, and it's a preserve, essentially, a scientific preserve. How did we get to this point from the, you know, the 100 years ago when actually Antarctica was a place for, for adventurers and explorers and the, the, the great the, the, the heroes you hear about, like Scott and Shackleton, um, which is, sounds like a much more sort of, you know, um, adventurous and kind of, uh, um, well, I want to say a dangerous player time. I, I expect it, it was. But how did you get from that to this peaceful scientific world? Well, I think they had a fantastic time then. I mean, they really were going into a place where of, of the unknown, uh, and able to go to places that humans had never been before. And I think over time, well, they were doing science as well. So they be were beginning to put together the early maps and beginning to understand the history of Antarctica and, and, and be beginning to understand what the environment was like, you know, the animals that lived there and the climate. And then gradually over time, I think people began to realise it is a very special place. And they realised as the rest of the world was, you know, in warfare and, and at each other's throats, that Antarctica actually was probably the only continent where there, nobody was living, 
but actually was a continent that could be preserved for mankind, for peace and science. Thankfully, the Antarctic Treaty was signed in 1959 with the 12 initial countries to uh, ensure that Antarctica was, pre was preserved for peace and for science. And since that time, you know, now there are 54 countries that uh, work in Antarctica. And every year we have a meeting of the Antarctic Treaty members to discuss the Antarctic Treaty, to discuss the protection of Antarctica and to ensure that Antarctica is continually preserved for peace and science. So the, the Antarctic Treaty has meant that the place is um, kept for scientific research and it's doing great work as a, as a result. And um, more countries are interested in that. Um, how do you see that um, in the future? Is it going to continue as a place, as a preserve for science? Or do you think that there are going to be other interests, commercial interests perhaps, um, minerals, uh, explorers who want to go down there to sort of harvest what's down there? Well, this is, there's a lot of discussion about the mineral resources of Antarctica. Um, I hope that that never really happens. Um, there are, of course, minerals in Antarctica. It's got a rocky basement and, and, and they're there. But first of all, the Antarctic Treaty and the Environmental Protocol ban mining and exploitation. And so if anybody wanted to go there and, and mine the minerals, they would have to uh, break the treaty. And I think that politically would be a very difficult thing to do and dangerous thing to do. I think it will be a long time before Antarctica becomes accessible to mining. I mean, it is a very difficult place to get to. It is currently extremely remote, um, dark and cold in winter and very difficult to work in. At the moment, I think the, Antar uh, the Arctic is much more accessible. And there are, you know, places like Greenland, where the ice sheet on Greenland is melting quite fast and is there are already ex mineral exploration companies in Greenland. So I think the focus will be up there and, and on the seafloor before it gets to Antarctica. Um, you mentioned um, already the, the the robotic craft that go underneath the uh, ice sheets to do amazing modern bits of science that give you insights into the continent you've never had before. Are there other um, modern research projects that really stand out for you, the, the kinds of work that's going on down there scientifically? The other important thing that's going on actually is uh, from above, from satellite imagery. I mean, we do use a lot of satellite imagery these days and that shows us the bigger scale. So from the satellite images, you can see, you know, where the big icebergs are breaking off and where they're going. But you can also see where the animals are. So the resolution of satellites these days is just so amazing that we can even count individual penguins on the ground in Antarctica. So you can you can actually see where you can see all the brown smudges where the guano around the penguin uh, colony. And then you can actually home in and see individual penguins on their nest and to be able to count them. And you can see individual albatross on their nest amongst the sort of grassy subantarctic islands and count them. And you can see individual whales in the ocean around Antarctica. So it's quite astounding what you can do for, with satellite imagery these days. We've talked about the potentially devastating impact that the that um, rising CO2 levels have um, on Antarctica. And, and you know, th that's going to continue. Uh, is there anything that, you know, well, what is the thing? That you, how, how would you say to people um, about what to think about that? How, what, what can we do about you know, the, the fact that this this pristine continent is is 
being irreversibly changed so fast. The really key thing that we need to do as humans on this planet is to look at the carbon dioxide levels and to if we really want to maintain a planet like that we know at the moment with glaciers at the poles you know and with habitable conditions over most of the earth then we really need to to stop carbon dioxide levels rising and that means we really do need to pay attention to burning fossil fuels particularly coal but oil and gas and we need to make them more of renewable energy ensure we have more forests and uh, you know all the actions that people are talking about we really absolutely need to to really start doing that seriously and fast so that we can take control of carbon dioxide levels can I ask you one final question, which we've asked all the uh, participants in our interviews. Why does Antarctica matter to you? Um, for two reasons, I think. First of all, scientifically and for, for humanity, Antarctica affects the rest of the globe. I mean, we can't just see it as a continent that is sitting at the end, remotely at the end of the planet and has no impact and no value for anyone else. It is a major, major control on ocean circulation. It's a major control on the atmosphere and our climate. It's a major control on sea levels. I mean, it has a huge influence on everything we do wherever you are in, in the world. Um, for me personally, Antarctica matters because it is a really, really special place. I think to have a huge continent like that where we're trying to keep free of warfare, we're trying to keep free of human, dangerous human influence and and a, a continent which is incredibly beautiful and awesome. Although it is cold and it is remote and it is stormy and it can be the worst place in the world in a, on a really bad day when you're in your tent and the tent is flapping and you're freezing cold and you've got to go outside and get some more butter or something from a box inside. It's terrible and it, you wish you were anywhere else, but actually on a good day, it, you, you wouldn't, couldn't be in a more beautiful place. It's truly awesome. Jane, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking about Antarctica. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha. It was produced by Jessica Norman with Ben Hewis as digital producer. Music was composed by Alec Hughes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A Voyage to Antarctica is part of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust's Antarctica in Sight programme, celebrating and reflecting on the past 200 years of human endeavour across this fascinating continent. The UK Antarctic Heritage Trust is the charity championing the public understanding of and engagement with Antarctica. You can find out more at www.ukaht.org. Next time I'll be talking to Ruth PC and finding out how penguins can predict the future. See you next week.